IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review new albums by Lord, Big Red Machine, and Turnstile. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Jimothy. <laughs> Jimothy, how are you? Yeah, I mean, ha- have we already, like, have we already exited the Jimothy discourse window? Like, th- this, well, this was this... Sunday, you know, that was Sunday, this yeah. is Thursday, and, like, I, I, I really, I really wonder. Well, we're recording on Thursday, this is going up Friday. I mean, we, I think this will be, like, the last stand of Jimothy jokes. <laughs> In this episode, but it's like we have to we have to acknowledge Jimmy in an episode <laughs> because I feel like this was one of the great moments that we've had this summer uh, on, on Twitter. You know, the New York Times they put out their story about this rapper from uh, England uh, named Jimothy, <laughs> and uh, wasn't the tweet something about how he doesn't rap about cars and money? Here, so here's the thing that like a part of me like really just feels bad for this writer because like imagine like I, I I think about the times I pitched the New York Times and got a polite you know pass very like saying yeah you know probably just not as high profile as we might need and um you know so there's a little bit of schadenfreude going on here but like uh, imagine like being this writer you're super excited about this rapper from England who you think is just really innovating the game uh, they're doing things really differently than other rappers, um, and you want to get that across. And you and 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 then you see that the tweet, the one that everyone was dunking on, was talking about how this rapper doesn't. You know, most rappers talk about money and cars, yes. and you know, sexual conquests. Wait, wait, wait. Which I yeah. hate, by the way. I'm glad someone's finally not talking about that stuff. Can we finally get a rapper? Talks who, about going to the uh, grocery it, store and like taking advice exactly. from their mom. Which, yes. If- that, that's what we are all waiting for. We're waiting for like, a Jimothy to come down <laughs> uh, from up on high and save us from all of this decadence <laughs> in hip-hop, which we're all sick of. I mean, you feel bad for the writer. I feel bad for Jimothy because <laughs> you get a profile in the New York Times. This should be... A highlight of your career, and it just turns into a disaster. You know, it, I mean, in a way, it's probably good for him, maybe because it's a viral story, and we all know Jimothy's name now. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I love the fact that every four to six months, there's this profile of a musician in the New York Times that seems like a parody of a musician that the New York Times would profile. Like, do you remember uh, that story? I think it was in January about. Country music's next emo rap star. Do you remember that? Remember I that do. Story? And I, I feel like I'm gonna like win uh, Final Jeopardy one day for remembering that this person's <laughs> name was Kid G. Like, I, 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 there's gonna be so many things I forget that are like important over the next several years. But Kid G, that, and I can't believe that was this year. By the way, <laughs> yeah, that was this year, and you know, and I think we all can uh, can say that. 2021 has been the year of KG. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the New York Times called that shot in January <laughs> that this would be country music's next emo rap star. People were skeptical, but I think it's been proven now. We're toward the end of August that Kid G has been been on everyone's yes. lips. You know, we're we're all banging 
to his country music emo rap style. When are we getting the Jimothy Kid G version of like Watch the Throne? Oh, oh my god, I, 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 I want that so badly. Like, first off, it would kind of confirm the fact that these people actually make music. Uh, look, man, I, yes, I feel. Did, like, did you listen to Jimothy at all? I have not listened to Jimothy. I have not listened to Jimothy. Like, Jimothy's music could just not possibly meet the expectations I have for it in my head. Um, uh, like, why why ruin this beautiful moment where I think we have to understand the importance of Jimothy in the big picture <laughs> is that it is, like, the one rare time where all factions of Twitter are united yeah. on one front and just dunking on this guy like he's Frederick Weiss. Like, I, every now and again, like, as cursed and soulless and, you know, with no hope for redemption like music writer Twitter is, every now and again you get a Jimothy that makes it seem worth it. That's so true. you know what? This album in some way has had more impact on my life than, you know, albums that I might actually like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, shout out to Jimothy. Like, all races yeah. and creeds coming together to dunk on this story. It really was, like you said, bringing people together in the spirit of, well, not goodwill, but, you know, of of, yeah. of, of at least joy. We all had a lot of fun with Jimothy. And, you know, if this is the last stand of Jimothy jokes, which I think it is, I think, you know, we're about five days after that story, which in internet time is like five years. So, yeah, and in 2022, Jimothy jokes will make a comeback. Like that, <laughs> we'll be celebrating the like every now and again on Twitter. You'll see like some like some tweets that's like that are so good. People have to celebrate the anniversary of them. August twenty, like whatever day it was, August twenty second. Let's call it. Yeah, I'm gonna mark that on my calendar and just make Jimothy jokes for. As until the stars burn out on that day, yeah. that is August twenty second. It is, you know, it it is a sign that summer is over. Yeah, I, so. th- I think like when they make the period piece about twenty twenty one, they're gonna play Jimothy songs to you know evoke the era in the same way. No, they're, they're what they're gonna do is show someone on Twitter making Jimothy jokes. Like well, Jimothy's music must never like we can <laughs> never ever spoil our Jimothy moment by listening to Jimothy music. I just like the idea of Jimothy being like the Credence Clearwater revival of uh, 2021. <laughs> like, you know, they play Credence to evoke Vietnam, you know, in the late sixties, yeah. they'll play Jimothy. But like you said, it won't be the actual music. It'll just be someone's idea of what Jimothy sounds like, which in my mind is like a, a kid with a Cockney accent talking about his parents over, uh, a rudimentary so beat. in other words, it's like the streets. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I just described the streets. Um, <laughs> do we want to talk about Nirvana being sued by the Nevermind Baby? Uh, oh, or, or is this story too dark for us to uh, get into? Because the assumption you know, is that this kid, well, he's not a kid, he's like a grown man now. I hope so. Um, <laughs> yeah, what if he's still a baby? That'd be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we call him the Nevermind Baby, even though he's an adult, because it's funny to say that Nirvana's being sued by a baby. Uh, but, I mean, it seems like this is a pretty obvious cash grab. I mean, I, I he's claiming that this is child pornography mm-hmm. and that he has had his privacy violated, even mm-hmm. though no one would yeah. know that he is the Nevermind Baby if he hadn't publicized it. I mean, he does not look like the baby anymore. He's a grown man. So you wouldn't necessarily know that that's the guy if you look at the album cover. I think he's recreated the cover as well, but he's like wearing a bathing suit, right? Right, exactly. But he's saying like everyone has seen my my baby penis, so uh, this is a violation and he's suing Nirvana. 
I don't know. Did they say for how much? I don't know how much uh, money. I was about to for. ask you that question. I mean, whatever it is, this seems like a look. I, I mean, it's it's obviously a cash grab. Maybe it's just my status as an empath. But um, the fact that like this person is either you know down hard enough where he needs to kind of make good on this suing of Nirvana or like some lawyer kind of ginned him up to say, hey, you can actually get maybe not even some money, but like a settlement from the Nirvana estate just to make this go away. Um, it's like kind of the opposite of the Jimothy story where it's like there's no even the jokes just like because even the jokes just kind of make me depressed. Like this is like this is why Jimothy is so important, because Nine times out of ten, if there's an internet story, it's this one. You, where you, it, you brought it back to Jimothy already. Like you couldn't quit Jimothy. I I, no. I, I love this. It's like it's hard to let Jimothy go. <laughs> I've been lying to the public. I am not ready to give up, Jimothy. Uh, yeah. What if we just keep bringing Jimothy back? Like every episode, it just becomes something that becomes so tired that people <laughs> think it's funny. You know that, yeah. that we're just gonna beat jimothy jokes into the ground uh we should do a survey about that on our twitter page like do you want us to make a jimothy reference yeah hashing out hashing out trends is out just like (laughs) rehashing jimothy is in that's right we review albums we rehash jimothy uh (laughs) and nothing else that's nothing else um well, we have a lot of albums to to get to today. We so, do. so but before we get to those, uh, let's let's go to our mailbag segment. And uh, if you want to email us, we're at indiecastmailbag at gmail Also, we are on Twitter now. We're yes. uh, at indiecast one on oh. Twitter. We've been who's indiecast? What's uh, yeah I, yeah? It's right. I guess the, there was an indiecast before us. Yeah. Um, it's like whenever you see the license plate that says you know like baller. 44 it means that like 43 other people had that idea before you did i mean you know it could just mean indie cast like we're number one like we're as in like we're the number one indie music podcast in the world uh and we're the only indie cast (laughs) well well, there's there's a couple other indie music website uh podcasts i guess but like we're we're the only one that matters, I think, right? Isn't that been yeah, established? My, the the what the 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 indie cast that it, it there is an indie cast and it is twenty four followers and they've not tweeted since April two thousand fifteen. Oh man, give it up, give it up, original indie cast. Yeah, Taylor and Natalie approved. Mike and Sean get together weekly and discuss anything and everything. But do they hash out trends? No, they do not. And, and they haven't for six years. I think yeah. you got to get the boot. We don't want our <laughs> listeners. They're gonna sue us now. Well, Great. Oh, I mean, fuck. How many? I bet they've gotten some tweets sent to them uh, in the past <laughs> week or two from people who are like, want to talk about Muse is the second law, and they don't understand <laughs> why these people are reaching out yeah, to them. They, they have Taylor Swift and Natalie Maines, I believe, in their background. Oh man. Okay. Well, anyway, Indiecast yeah. One is our Twitter. We've we've been commiserating with. Listeners, it's been a lot of fun. Join the party with us over there if you are yes. on Twitter. Um, this uh, letter today comes from Beirut, Lebanon. This is like our first listener in Beirut that is li- that is written in. This is pretty exciting. Uh, his name is, uh, I think it's pronounced Michel. I'm going to say Michel. M-I-C-H-E-L. I hope I didn't mispronounce that. It might be Michael. might be Michelle. Anyway, thank you for writing in. He writes... 
I've always wondered, how do big music publications like Pitchfork choose which journalist reviews which album? Um, I know if Ian did the Foxing review for Pitchfork, for example, <laughs> just to name a random example, yeah. uh, the album would have rated higher. So what's the deal? Is there a voting system? Do all journalists have to agree on uh, the review? Uh, I'd like to know more about that. And that's from, again, Michelle or Michael in Beirut, Lebanon. Thank you for mm-hmm. writing in. And, you know, I hear this question a lot from people. Very, people are very curious about how, like, scores are determined or how, you know, a particular writer is chosen to write a review. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, th- he's directing this at you. He's basically saying that if you had written the Foxing review for Pitchfork, it wouldn't have gotten a 6.0. It would have gotten, like, a, like a 12.0. Uh, yeah. But that's not really true, is it? Can you can you can you break this down? Yeah. First off, I I, I just want to thank uh, Michael slash Michelle. Let's call him M. Uh, you use the word journalist instead of like critic or writer or blogger. Maybe there maybe it's just like more dignif a more dignified uh, line of work in Lebanon. But I appreciate that first and foremost. I feel I ve- I feel very astute as if I've written for the New York Times. Um. Anyway, like as far as how this goes, like. I feel there's been some transparency as far as like how this works and not just a pitchfork, but like in every publication, that's a publication that I've written for, you know, it's not, I just love when people get into these complicated and convoluted conspiracies about how scores work and like how, you know, the money was exchanged here and like bag men and all that stuff. And, well, and I, one thing I don't think people understand is that like writers, <laughs> if you're writing for pitchfork, you're not giving the score yourself no it, it, let's it, just put that out there it's a, the institution is putting the score on and they have essentially cast the writer to write the review that is in a in line with what the editors feel about the album yeah right isn't that like a succinct way of putting it yeah, it's a, it's a succinct way of putting it, and also it's, like, less fun to discuss than uh, conspiracy theories and so forth that, like, oh, they need to, like, send a blank, they need to send unmarked bills to Condé Nast to, like, get that .4 score bumped up. But really, I think what gets overlooked is that so much of this is self-selection. Like, you have to basically pitch. I mean, I think if we take Foxing, for example... Uh, dealer in 2015 like I pitched that because I'm like hey this album's important in its scene and it probably wouldn't be covered otherwise and you know when an album's at that level you can pretty much you know have a little bit more say in what it gets as long as it's not like completely discordant with the editorial voice um you know near my god I was in the ballpark of you know what editorial thought and you know there's some finagling going on but in the process of doing that one, uh, I kind of assumed that uh, my view of this band was not that of the editorial uh, voice. And so I just took it elsewhere because like if I did it like, you know, like like Michael or Michelle was saying, either the publication or myself would look very dishonest, you know, because it's either like way above what they think or way below what I think. And so you really just have to. whenever you pitch a review and this is true regardless of what publication you have to tell them what you're thinking as far as like grade or stars or score because otherwise like you know otherwise like why would they give it to you there's like 15 to 20 to 30 to 40 other people who can you know reflect that more and you know that's just kind of a necessary i don't want to say evil but just like part of the gig if you're writing for a publication 
with an editorial voice. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's something that is worth keeping in mind as a reader, that there are places like Pitchfork and Rolling Stone, just to name two obvious examples, that, like you said, they have an institutional voice, that when they weigh in on an album, it's the brand that's weighing in on the album. You know, Pitchfork mm. gave Foxing a 6.0. The writer did not give... The six point wow. The writer is speaking on behalf <laughs> of the institution. Like you are, yeah. you are there to represent the shield. I consider myself lucky in my career that I've I've written for places that didn't necessarily have an institutional voice. Like for instance, when I was at Grantland, it was it, it was not uncommon to run multiple pieces on an album or a film or a TV show, and have different opinions being expressed about that particular thing. Like I remember when 1989 came out, the Taylor Swift record, I wrote a middling review of the record. And on the same day, they uh, also ran a piece by Molly Lambert. That was a more complimentary piece. So, and I think they ran like right next to each other. Uh, and now I'm at Uproxx and it's the same thing. Like I've never asked, what do you think about, this record before I write about it, they just let me write about it and maybe someone else will write about it and express a different opinion. Um, and I consider myself lucky in that regard because I think for writers, it is ultimately better to not have to write to an institutional voice because people get to know who you are, uh, mm. you know, easily as opposed if, if you're just stuck in that kind of system. I think you, Ian, are an exception to that because you write about the same sorts of records. So people know your taste and they know who you are. But it can be hard to step outside of that if you're writing for Pitchfork all the time or you're writing for Rolling Stone all the time and not for yourself and not writing from a personal point of view. I also like writing from a personal point of view just because you can also be a little bit more idiosyncratic. You know, you don't have to affect the omniscient critic voice. You can write about records more as like a regular person and and say I don't like this record because I have a bias against this kind of thing. Like you could say that in a review <laughs> if you're just writing as yourself that you can't do if you're writing for Pitchfork. And I think that works well for Pitchfork because that's the expectation ultimately that readers have when they go to that site. They're reading that because they want Pitchfork's take. Pitchfork has a brand. They have an identity as a website and the editors are there. It's their job to be stewards of that. So, yeah, they're not going to let anyone just write anything they want. Um, they're going to, uh, you know, govern that in some sort of way. Uh, but, yeah, but these are things that are worth, I think, taking in consideration. Maybe, like, the quickest shorthand for this is that if a site is giving a score, yeah, you should assume that editors are the ones picking the score and not the writer. Whereas if there's not a score and it's just a writer's opinion, it might be more likely that they're just writing from a personal point of view. Exactly. And, you know, the, and there's also plenty of positives for writing in an institutional voice. Like, for example, like more people might read, you know, more people might read that, you know, a review of, say, Johnny Football Hero than me talking about it on Twitter or something like that. So exactly. it's a bit of a tr it's a bit of a trade off. But, yeah, it's almost like a salary negotiation where, you know, you go into a job and you're like, OK, well, what kind of mo money do you expect? And, you know, you kind of have a ballpark idea. And maybe you can negotiate a little bit higher, but if like you ask for like thirty thousand more bucks, like you're not going to get the job. So, d does IndieCast have an institutional voice? I mean, do we have like an <laughs> overlord on this show? I, 
uh, maybe we don't want to say this to the public. I mean, that there's like a man behind the curtain here that you and yeah. I have to go to to get approval for everything that we say <laughs> on this show. Yeah, no, no trend can be hashed out before we have to submit to uh, redacted. It's like you get exactly 27 Jimothy jokes in this episode. <laughs> Do not go over like one Jimothy joke. Or yes. uh, we'll we'll put in two other knuckleheads uh, to host this show. The original, the original IndieCast, Mike and Mike and Dave, or whatever the hell those guys are, who ha- who have the IndieCast Twitter handle. Oh yeah, yep, yeah. They're gunning for us now. Yeah, that well, you know, they they broke the rules and now they're stranded in Twitter purgatory for six years. Uh, but yeah, that could be us. So we have to be careful on this show. Um, let's get to the meat. Of our episode here, we we got three albums to talk about this week. Some weeks we have no albums. <laughs> this week we yeah, have get, a ton. Get your shit together, music industry. Yeah, like, be on the IndieCast schedule because next week is looking mad light. Yeah, it's looking pretty pretty weak, but uh, it's raining this week, and uh, we're gonna start with uh, uh, the biggest record that's come out uh, certainly in the past week. This album <laughs> dropped last Friday. It's called mm-hmm. Solar Power. It's by Lord. Lord, of course, is a huge singer-songwriter and pop star. Uh, this is her first album in four years since 2017's Melodrama, uh, which was a big critical hit and I think like a pretty good commercial hit. I don't. It wasn't as uh, popular as I think some of the writing suggested. Uh, I, I had a friend in radio, or I, he's still my friend, who talked about how, the, <laughs> how about how this record didn't really do big. On radio, um, and but you know you had songs like Greenlight from that record. Yeah, that was a big you know certainly internet hit. Um, and now we have Solar Power, and uh, mm-hmm. this record has been. Uh, is it fair to call it mixed, or should we just call it negative reception to this album? Uh, I feel like for a record of this size, it's pretty negative. I mean, because we've talked on this show about how often you don't see negative reviews. Uh-huh. And like Rolling Stone gave this three and a half stars. Oh, which, that's how you know it. Yeah, that's how you know. <laughs> which to me is like giving it two stars. I mean, because they're they're pretty generous, I think, to this uh, you know the, the, this generation of like millennial <laughs> pop stars. Um, uh-huh. They tend to be pretty kind. So three and a half to me suggests, oh, there's actually not as much enthusiasm as you might expect for this record. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that carries over to us, right? I mean, we've listened to this record for the past week. Now we're ready yeah. to talk about it. We are ready to talk about it. And just at just at the top, should we should we say that neither one of us really like this record? Yeah, it's um, you know, I I, I was actually ex- more, maybe more excited about this album than maybe you were cuz I think Melodrama was your album of the year in 2017, right? Uh, yeah. Or close to it. It would have been. Yeah, I I really liked it a lot. I think it's a great record. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah, I mean... No, it, I would have said Deeper Understanding was my number one. Oh, I'm right, sure that right. would have been my number one in 2017. But right. Melodrama was at least in the top ten, maybe top five. Okay. And so, I don't know. Like, I, I'm, I'm experiencing this this sort of dialectic with, like, the big pop records now where I like, com- get completely disengaged from, like, the album rollout aside from, like, the narrative because I'm not really a, at the center anymore and so i don't have to like listen to albums if i don't want to but it, it, it reminded me a little bit of like the billy eilish rollout where people really weren't into the singles and so that kind of opened a lane for me to maybe like this album more on my own terms because with melodrama like you said 
it weirdly isn't a commercial success. Like people might look back on that as like, oh, you know, the, you know, it didn't sell records, but it turned uh, Lord into this uh, artistic force, you know, the way like Pinkerton or something like that. But um, yeah, I, I think with melodrama, the reason I couldn't really get into it, and I'm going to use this word parasocial. It's one of my favorite terms that I've seen bandied about where basically it's, it, it's just a way to put a scientific term to it me. I think that really happened with melodrama where people so um, put themselves into the album, which, you know, is a sign of good songwriting in a way, but it just kind of made it a little bit insufferable. And I didn't really just, I just didn't really kind of vibe with it. Isn't that every um, big pop record now? I mean, yeah, I think it's every single one. Yeah. But, you know, this one more so because I think that, um, you know, Lord, uh, people grew up alongside her more, but... And also she seems a lot more relatable than I think a lot of like pop, pop stars. But, um, you know, with this record, the fact that people were kind of muted on it and they said, oh, it reminds me of like Natasha Bedingfield or whatever. I don't know. Maybe maybe it would be like that Amen Dunes record that like everyone said sounded like David Gray. I kind of like that style of music. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, when, you know, Billie Eilish and Clara's album dropped, even though they were much more muted than the big uh, millennial pop records or Gen Z pop records that came before, uh, I kind of liked how personality driven they were about like these young artists struggling with fame and self-doubt and, you know, wanting to quit the music industry. Um, I feel like a butt is coming from you here, though. Like you, you, you're setting up how you might have liked this record, but I did. But there is a there's a not, butt, there's a butt coming here, though, right? There is a tremendous butt coming, and I listened to this record, and it just had. I thought it was smug in a way that I felt like was really off putting. Um, I think the reason is like, uh, and I, you know, I hate to lump all these artists together, but like they do have a lot in common as far as like operating at the top echelon of pop slash indie. But I think with this album, like Lord is trying to teach us something as opposed to just expressing what they really believe. And I think that discrepancy just makes a lot of song like, like California, like, come on, like, A, you're making a song called California, you're personifying it. And, uh, you know, and it's not what it seems. And so I think what the reason I just kind of, and there's some great lyrics here, there's some really good writing happening, but also the concept of it, I think just really misses the mark and comes off like, uh, like again, like she's trying to teach us something about ourselves rather than coming from a part of personal experience. And like when you have to ask if something is satire, uh, I don't know if it really did its job as satire. Yeah, you know, I like that you used the word smug because that hadn't occurred to me. But I think that's a good way to describe this record and why I don't really like it. And it mm. actually made me think a lot. And other people have made this comparison because it's, it's 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 an obvious comparison to make. But the HBO show The White Lotus, which oh, I thought you were about to say Father John Misty. No, I would never compare this to Father John Misty. <laughs> which, by the way, pure comedy. That was my number one album of, of uh, twenty seven. Ah, that that was my, and I'll defend that choice to this day. Um, but uh, getting back to Lord and the White Lotus, you know, I finally started watching the White Lotus this week, and I'm I'm about to watch the last episode. Even though I don't like the show at all, I it, it's uh, it's been really uh, kind of a struggle for me to get through it, and uh, you know it's basically a show about privileged white people made by privileged white people mm-hmm. for the for the entertainment of other privileged white people, and mm-hmm. it's not particularly funny. 
Uh, it's not all that dramatic or or biting or savage. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels sort of bland. I, I, and I feel that way about the show, and I feel that way about this album. That mm-hmm. uh, there's, you know. I actually don't think this album is that smart. I, I think what bothers me about it is that it's both not fun and kind of insipid, like musically and also lyrically. I, I, I just don't think that there's like a lot on this record that is, uh, again, insightful or interesting. I, I, I don't feel like she's saying anything original yeah. about the state of the world. Musically, it's really flat mm-hmm. in a way that is surprising to me coming off of melodrama which i think is such a dynamic record and i think what people latch onto that record along with the lyrics are it is just the romantic sweep of a lot of the songs mm-hmm. it's it, it really kind of lifts you up and, and wraps you up in this world that uh, is, is very captivating and on that record and also on her first album pure heroin you know she was cultivating this sort of like kate bush art pop persona mm-hmm. that i really like and now she's transitioned into this, uh, you know, kind of 70s singer-songwriter mode. You know, there's like a lot of guitar tones on this record that remind me of like Hajira, like the Joni Mitchell record, which is my favorite Joni Mitchell record. Oh. And there's other kind of sonic references to that era, which is something that I feel like I would normally enjoy. And it's also like when you listen to the Claro record, like she's mining something similar but I just find the Claro record to be a lot better than this album. I, 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 I don't know if it's just because I liked melodrama mm. so much that this record bothers me. I just feel like it's such a step down. Uh, and, and again, I go back to your word smug. I think that's a good word mm. for it, where I think this record thinks it's smarter than it actually mm. is. And that is a terrible place, I think, for any piece of art to be. Like, where... It acts like it's profound, but it, when it really has nothing to say, and it's sort of, again, I'll use the word ins- insipid. I, I think this is kind of an insipid record in the same way I think The White Lotus is kind of an insipid show, you know, like where, like, what statement are you making about this sort of world of, like, privilege that you're a part of, <laughs> but you're not really taking apart in a way that to me is entertaining or, or again, uh, you know, illuminative. Yeah. I just think this kind of thing is so much harder to do in the current uh, state of things where everything's online. Like it's almost like people expect Saturday night live to still be relevant, but by the time they get, but by the time they (laughs) get to whatever it is that they're mocking, it's this, this topic has already been just so wrung dry that it, it can be just really difficult to like say things about, the world itself. Well, let's go on to our next record here, which is by Big Red Machine. It's called How Long Do You Think It's Gonna Last? And Big Red Machine is a collective. It was founded by Aaron Desner of The National and Justin Vernon of Bonnie Vare. And uh, it was an outgrowth of the festivals that they've run, like Eau Claire's in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and the People Festival in Berlin, where they essentially invite all of these artists that they're friends with to perform and to also do sets together and to, uh, I, I guess the idea is to make music that you wouldn't normally make on your own, you know, to push yourself into different areas with, with all these collaborators. And uh, that idea has carried over to Big Red Machine and the albums they put out. The The debut came out in 2018. It was a self-titled record. And now you have this record, How Long Do You Think It's Going to Last, which features 
Vernon, along with Robert Robin Pecknold of Fleet Foxes and Anais Mitchell and someone called Taylor Swift, who's an up-and-coming singer-songwriter. Uh, but this album really is, I think, a showcase mostly for Aaron Desner. Um, it feels a lot like an Aaron Desner mixtape. And, of course, Aaron Desner has become, I think, a very unlikely like Pops Vengali in the last few years. Like he's like the least likely person that you would expect uh, to, to become that. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, before I said, you know, I think the idea like with the festivals that Vernon and Desner have done was to make music outside of their best known bands and to kind of create, you know, sonic worlds that they wouldn't have exp- explored otherwise if not for these collaborators. Uh, this album... To me, it sounds like sort of like the the Ur Desner text. Like it's like it's so yeah. Aaron Desner. Uh, like you would like if you didn't know he was, you know, the engineer of this album. Like you could figure it out just by listening to this record. And like, I love Aaron Desner. I love the National. So that's that's a good thing for the most part for me. Um, although I say that with some qualification. So, but I'm curious. I mean, like, what, like how do you feel about this record? This seems like an album. I could see you not liking this album. Yeah, I mean, my first issue is that, you know, since we are a podcast that uh, is the only one that exists at the intersection of uh, sports and pop culture, I got to just express my disappointment (laughs) that there's no songs about Pete Rose or Cesar Geronimo or George Foster or the actual Big Red Machine. I thought this would be kind of a concept uh, band like Pug Destroyer. Um, But nonetheless, uh, you know, here's the thing. Like, I... I do like all of these bands. Like I, I, I do like Bon Iver. I do like the national. I do like fleet foxes. Um, but you're right. I, 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 as you were saying, this is their, um, way of working outside of the structures that they've set for themselves. Like if that's the case, this album did an incredibly poor job of succeeding on the front because it sounds so fucking tasteful. It sounds like a national album that was fronted by Bon Iver. And like, look, I think that's, a good thing. Like I was actually surprised about how much I enjoyed it because, and I'm going to make some statements that will perhaps prove controversial to half of the IndieCast uh, hosting duo. I, I can't wait. Yeah, I, I, I think that my issue with the last couple, the reason I didn't really feel like I'm easy to find or, you know, to a certain degree, um, Sleep Well Beast is I think Matt Berninger is kind of the weakest point on the national albums of late. I think that he's kind of gotten into a bit of a shtick. So, and also with Boney Bear's albums, I think that he's kind of disappeared up, you know, into his own head with the kind of experimentalism of, you know, I.I. And, you know, the idea of Boney Bear fronting a national album is interesting to me. It's, you know, it gives me an opportunity to hear these two components that I enjoy together and and just to kind of get rid of the things that have uh, prevented me from being super into their last few records. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that stood out is how um, Aaron Dessner and uh, Jack Antonoff are kind of playing the same game right now as far as like kind of jazzier, soft rock, uh, folk-inflected indie rock. Um, but, you know, ultimately... It's very tasteful. There are some songs that really stand out as kind of being uh, Dark Was the Night style, uh, The National, with like the wiggly sort of dirty projectors-ish guitars, uh, which is great. I mean, that uh, that comp has cast such a long shadow over the past 12 years. Um, but I think 65 minutes of tasteful, 
that's a lot of tasteful music. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. This album is too long, especially given the preponderance of piano-based ballads yeah. on this record, which, again, if you're looking for Aaron Desner sonic hallmarks, there's a lot of circular-sounding piano mm-hmm. licks on this record, yeah. uh, very reminiscent of, of some of the recent national records. You know, it, it, it's interesting with this album because it is supposed to be this experimental side project, but I feel like in a lot of ways this is some of the most approachable music mm-hmm. that... Aaron Desner and certainly Justin Vernon have put out in, in recent years. I mean, I, I like the last Bonnie Bear record a lot more than you do. Yes, you do. But you haven't heard Justin Vernon just singing over piano music very much lately, you know, which is what you get on this record. Uh, so that's kind of a surprise to me, like when I when I put this on. And of course you have Taylor Swift on the record. She sings on the song Renegade, which is already a breakout song from this record. And uh, you know, Unsurprisingly, when you have Taylor Swift on your record, you're going to have a lot of pop appeal. Yeah. I mean, and that song just pops out as a very immediate pop song uh, on this record. I have to say, like, I got to do a shout out to Marcus Mumford because he wasn't invited to be on this record. Uh. And uh, I want to do, I, this is a sincere thing, the, the Mumford & Sons album that Aaron Desner worked on, which I cannot remember the name yeah, of Yeah, but I know that The Wolf, that's the song on there. That that song slaps, okay? While, is it Wilder Mind? I'm like not even looking this up. I'm just going to yeah. go off the dome. I'm going to, I'm, I'm Googling right now. It's, it, it is definitely Wilder Mind. Ah, I'm, I'm the resident Mumford expert. Yeah, the wolf. That song yeah. slaps, man. Like I say that unironically. That is it. Yeah. That that if if you told if you if, if you played that song and did not say who made it, I think people would have a far different opinion of it. Yeah, it's really good. And so bring Marcus Mumford into the fold, yeah. man. Like, cause he he's in this family too. I feel like. Um, but, uh, you know, to go to your Berninger comment there, I mean, I obviously disagree with that. I, I'm still a, a big Matt Berninger uh, stan. And I will say that, like, I like this album overall, but my main criticism of it would be that it doesn't have a central personality like a Matt Berninger who really infuses these songs with, with some humor and a perspective uh, you know, like Aaron Desner sings on this record. Uh, it's, I believe it's the first time he's ever sung on an album. And you know, he's he got some stones to do that, man. <laughs> Which, yeah, yeah. And, and he's got a nice voice. It's sort of what you would expect. It's kind of like an Elliot Smith sensitive guy type <laughs> voice. And he sings a song about his brother called Brycey. It's about them being kids and how his brother, it's a very, actually, very sweet song. It's a song about how his brother helped him through a very depressive time in his life when he was in high school um and uh a very sweet song but uh yeah just that central figure that's something i was missing here and because i i i disagree i don't think he's become a caricature I, i i love what he brings to the records and i would actually say that one thing that i struggled with a little bit with i'm easy to find is that berninger actually isn't on that record very much or he isn't on it he isn't on as much as he usually is because there's a lot of other voices on that record and i like hearing him um not to make this all about the national but like how great would it be if the next national record were just like those five guys in a room playing live and they recorded it in like two weeks like that that's my dream of the next national record because I, i i feel like in a way this album um, you know, it, it sets this era of Aaron Desner music 
in in Amber, you know, yeah. along with the Taylor Swift records that he made. It's like that again, piano based sound with like electronic beats skittering on the edge, that low key thing. I mean, he's milked that for all it's worth. I don't know how much further he can push that. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like to he- hear him just play some like rock and roll music again. You know, bring it back to Alligator. I'd love to hear that. Oh man, would I love to hear that? <laughs> So speaking of rock and yes. roll, we're gonna we're saving the loudest record for last in this episode. This is the Turnstile record, <laughs> and, and you have a review of this record going up on Pitchfork today. Yeah, and I so, don't know what score it's getting right now. So that just wow. that, that, I mean, I have an idea, but um, you know, but let, this gets to our previous discussion. Like, I don't know the answer to that yet. I have a ballpark idea. We've not landed on a number, um, but yeah, this is like kind of the what. Big Red Machine is to you. This is sort of to me. Um, the Turnstile for, you know, the IndieCast listener who uh, have not heard their funky Radical Bomb tracks just yet. Uh, they are a Baltimore hardcore band. They've been around for over a decade. Really uh, broke through with 2015's uh, Nonstop Feeling, which is a hardcore record that a lot of people were comparing to 311 and Incubus, which is a very interesting thing to compare a hardcore band to. Yeah, I mean, I because I've seen that. Is that just because it's like heavy riffs and clean sounding vocals? Yeah, I mean that's the only thing I can. Okay, there, yeah, because there, there's that, some funk to it. A lot of their riffs sort of sound like uh, 311's "Down" or "Nice to Know You." Uh, like it, and also, um, in uh, earlier on, Brendan Yates, the lead uh, singer, he rapped a lot more, so it is not unwarranted, um, and. As I'm sure we've discussed many times in past episodes, whenever people compare things to 311 and Incubus and Red Chili Peppers, you never quite know if they mean that as a compliment. But um, in two, and I don't think those are as pertinent now. Those comparisons, no, not really. They're there, but they're just kind of a thing you say about Turnstile out of habit. But like I would maybe say like the later Incubus albums, like Morning View, like yeah, maybe or you Crow left, that. a Crow Left of the Murder, if you will. Um, Are we gonna do an Incubus episode? We gotta do an Incubus um, episode. We're, we're, I'm surprised that I was able to pull Incubus album titles out of out of yeah, my brain. Morning View like, is I, the popular I, one. Well, it is, and we're not talking. But post- still, I'm giving. Okay, I'm give me a little bit of depth. Yeah, I'm giving me a little bit of depth for just pulling Incubus. I mean, should should I mention Science? Though? Oh yeah, absolutely. Is, is that, That's the one. Fungus is Among that more Us. Of a deep cut. Fungus Among <laughs> Us. Science. All all bangers. Um, but yeah. Uh, so because they sound a lot more like a '90s alt rock band, they got. They signed a Roadrunner for Time and Space in 2018, Roadrunner being a label that represents, uh, of course, Code Orange as well. They're like, even though they were like... Also a, Creed back in yeah, the day. Yeah, they were like a new metal. Like, they started out like rapping Slipknot, I think Nickelback as well, maybe. Um, so, but nowadays they are like the label that hardcore or new metal bands go to when they want to play like the Made in America Festival. Um, that, that record got a lot of acclaim. They were on the cover of Spin. Um, a lot of people really love that record. Um, it had Diplo on it, uh, a backup singer from Lauren Hill. But, um, so here we are with their new album. You know, they, they've done a ton of side projects and... It's called Glow On, by the way. I don't think we said the album. Glow On, all pink cover. And, um, this record at, at the moment has the highest... Uh, critical consensus score on album of the year. 
which means it tops. It's above Floating Points. It's above Nick Cave. Like people are going nuts for this album. You're already seeing like writers from New York talking about like, oh my god, this wreck. They rip live. Which you know, if you've ever seen a, a Turnstile show, you know that to be the case. Um, so this album, it's 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 produced by Mike Elizondo. The last one was produced by Will Yip, who's produced a ton of records in this space. But Mike Elizondo is a guy who's produced uh, Dr. Dre, Fiona Apple, Mastodon. He co-wrote In the Club and The Real Slim Shady. And this record puts them in a position, I think, to... Like, whatever the the ceiling is for Turnstile, this album is meant to meet it. This blows time and space out of of the water, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, Um, I know you like that record. Yeah, too. I, I, I profile. I, I interviewed um, uh, Brendan oh. James, isn't it? Brendan Yates. Was, yeah, I interviewed Brendan Yates uh, when that record came out, and uh, I agree. I think this record is a lot better than Time and Space, and I think Time and Space is a really uh, fun record too. Fun record. And I just want to say, because I feel like I've talked about this on this show before, that there needs to be more bands making melodic hard rock. That is like one of the most yes. popular genres of all time. Some of the biggest albums ever made are essentially melodic hard rock records. And yet there's not a lot of bands doing that. Like either bands aren't hard rock or if they're on the on the hard rock or metal side, they're making records for like, you know, hardcore metal people. They're not really putting in the pop hooks that some of the biggest mm-hmm. like hard rock albums and songs have, you know, have when you listen to them. And that's how I approach this record and what where my appreciation comes from for it because it's like yes finally there's like a there's a band that has heavy riffs but they also have just like really catchy choruses and it it sounds yeah. like a simple formula but there's like not a lot of bands doing that right now and hopefully this record takes off and there will be a wave of people who want to rip off turnstile and and make music <laughs> in that vein because I really like it and I think this record it shows like how much fun that kind of music can be. I kind of wish this album had come out in June because this would have been like a fun record to have all summer long. You know, it, it's a really fun yeah. summertime record. Um, but now it'll just be a fun autumn time record, I guess. Well, yeah, I think it, it well, it's kind of late summer. I mean, I don't know, with climate change, maybe our window for summer albums is extended. <laughs> I'm excited because um, this is going to be the first band that I see live um, post-COVID. I'm seeing them in uh, Garden Grove, which is a city immortalized by a Sublime song, which, how perfect is that? But what I'm excited about this album doing is it looks like they're going to tour this album. They've already played a bunch of shows in New York. And, you know, I think it's got that missing element that was... In 2020, like a lot of great hardcore records. And also, uh, I don't know if you listened to that Higher Power record from last year, which I think was also on right. Roadrunner, but it was very much... Yeah, it, that, but Turnstile, I think, kind of do it a little more creatively. Yeah, it's like a, that record seemed more derivative to me, whereas this yeah. album, I think... Fun. Yeah, it's fun, yeah, but I think this is like... Turnstile feels a little bit more original, and they have their own thing yeah. going on. They, You might say they come original, all entertainers come original. Come okay, people are gonna Steve. The fact that you're not reacting to that just shows me you're not well versed enough in 311 for me to like throw out these sort of 
these sort of look. I mean, I I, I, okay. I, I I peaked with the Incubus references. We can talk about Incubus three eleven. I'm much more ignorant. We're gonna about. do an, but um, we're gonna do an entire episode. Where we listen to like all twenty five tracks on. I was Transistor. gonna say Transistor no. would be the album I would I would actually be most interested diving into with three eleven, just because I remember being in college and having friends of mine who were into 311 describe that as 311 Sandinista, which that that's what 311 would tell you, which is, I was like, I don't know if that's great or if that's terrible. I, that, that, that's a very weird combination. They played Rub-A-Dub, um, which is like one of the back, back, back songs, like one like the, the 18th song when I worked at the gap in 1999. So that just kind of gives you an indication of like what 311 Sandinista sounds yeah. like. Going back to Turnstile, you know, and, and I don't want to get into like a a semantic argument here about this because I don't, I really don't care about like how people define hardcore. But I, but like to me, like I don't understand like how this is how this band is still classified as a hardcore band because to me, there's really nothing mm-hmm. hardcore punk about this record. And I would actually say that for people out there who don't listen to hardcore and like maybe have a preconceived notion of what that is. And they, they would be turned off maybe from turnstile because they've been described that way. Again, I would say that this is a melodic hard rock band. They're not a hardcore yeah. band. They're, you know, and, and again, like I, a lot of it has to do with the vocals. This isn't like a screaming dude in your face, you know, that sort of boilerplate hardcore singer that's in every band. You know, the, the vocals here are, are, are pretty clean. They're pretty soaring. You know, it kind of adds again to the pop appeal of this band. I mean, I think the great thing about this band is that they can have, uh, you know, these great hooks on their records. And yet when they play their shows, they play with the energy of a hardcore band. So you're getting like all the good aspects of that, but you're also getting like a lot of sugar at the same time. So it it seems like Mm -hmm. they're giving you kind of the best of both worlds, uh, on this record. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you know what, it's like hardcore in ethics and like, you know, the, you you mentioned that no matter how insane a hardcore show is, you could show someone the sickest Gulch or Drain uh, footage on YouTube, and they still might only see, oh my god, like if I go to the show, I'm gonna get kicked in the head. Fuck or you're this. like, or like, or you, like I don't want to have a dude screaming at me for like 15 minutes. I mean, I think, I, and, yeah, and, and like, look, I mean, I think for people who don't connect with that, a lot of it has to do with the vocals. Mm-hmm. People don't. I think yeah. if you're not into that kind of music. The thing that turns you off is like, yeah, I don't want some dude screaming at me, and like, yeah, this guy's kind of more like Perry Farrell, right? Yeah, or or Brandon Boyd, you know, to bring it back, yeah, uh, to Incubus, yeah. Um, but again, they also have that energy and that you would want from a hardcore band, and and the power of a hardcore band, and and, and again, it's just like it's like heavy riffs and melodic vocals, and it just brings it together. And again, I love that and timbales, and I love that kind of music so much, and I'm glad. Someone's making it, and it seems like they're finding an audience. So, uh, you know, I think we're cheering for them to, to become really big. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode called Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so my recommendation comes from a band called Narrow Arrow, and the name of this album is Asbestos Week Hood. To say it quickly, it's as best as we could. They do puns in that style with their song titles. So this is a you know an, a true to form and an emo band from Mansfield, Ohio that I discovered on one of those fifth wave playlists, and uh, it sounds 
more like early aughts, kind of twinkly, uh, sort of American football derived with uh, harmonized guitars. But uh, with if, if you had someone like local natives on vocals, very smooth, they describe it more as like kind of a Jeff Buckley sort of thing. Um, very interesting sound. But the problem when you listen to these sort of playlists is that these bands will put out like one record in 2014 and you never hear from them again. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised to find out they have a new record, which is out to today. And, um, it really continues in that vein. It's like, if you like that sort of American football guitar style, but you want more of a, um, how can I put this delicately? Someone with like kind of a professional singing voice, someone who's got like skill. Um, and here's another selling point. Like I did not know this about the band until I saw a video the other night. This guy plays two guitars at the same time while singing. One's an eight string and the other is mounted like a pedal steel and he taps on both. Um, Yeah, you got like, it looks like one of those, I guess it looks gimmicky in a way, but like you would never know it from listening to the album itself. It just sounds like, you know, two guys playing overlapping tapping riffs, which is not over, you know, it's not something too far gone. But this record, it's very, you know, it's 25 minutes um it's got that so it's it's a little bit emo but also kind of indie pop like i would put dodos in there as well if that band means anything to you uh and they do to me uh this album will it's a real low-key um low stakes album that hits the sound that's kind of shockingly underrepresented you would think that there was more bands who were kind of pulling from both of those genres but uh narrow arrow as best as we could great album so I'm going to do a, a, a two-part recommendation here because the first part of my recommendation is actually an album that Ian shouted out last week. It's the Alien Boy record, Don't Know What I Am. Mm-hmm. This has been uh, my most listened-to record this week, the album I listened to for pleasure in between like suffering through like the Lord record and <laughs> some of the other albums you that got, we talked about this week. have those records. And... Uh, you know, Ian recommended it last week. I've been really digging into it. And look, look if, if, if you're a Steve Hyden listener on this show and you're like, I don't know about Ian Cohen choices, I'm going to sign off on the Ian Cohen choice this week. This is something that I think exists like in the, the circle between us of our overlapping interests. I mean, to me, this sounds like, like if the Jim Blossoms sounded more like Guided by Voices, uh, which is so in my wheelhouse. And I know there's people out there who, probably feel the same so definitely dig into this record alien boy don't know what i am uh so that's the first part i also would be remiss if i didn't give a quick shout out to the late charlie watts of the rolling stones who passed away this week at the age of 80 uh it's been said many times by many people this week but i'll repeat it he is one of the greatest drummers in rock history the quintessential playing for the song not too fancy but always in the pocket and really driving one of the greatest rock bands ever and you know, for those out there who maybe haven't really dug into the Rolling Stones, I think this is a good opportunity for that. And I would just recommend, in particular, the album Sticky Fingers, which came out in 1971. Lots of great Charlie Watts drumming on that record, as well as the 1970 live record Get Your Yayas Out. I would go right to Midnight Rambler. Great example of what Charlie Watts brought to the band. Just a killer groove, relentless. Uh, and again, one of the greats. So, again, R.I.P. Charlie Watts. Thank you for your service. Um, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more reviews and hashing out trends next week. And Jimothy. <laughs> and more and more Jimothy.
And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.